we continue through the book of Revelation. Today we are looking at Revelation 6, 1 through 11. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. As I read, please follow along in your Bible or on the screens. Hear from God's word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would, should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of a fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. After a reading like that, boy, do I need a word of prayer from the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit, I need strength and I need help to make plain and clear what I believe you are teaching the landing through these 11 verses. Maybe some of the most important in all the book of Revelation. Maybe some of the most important in the Bible. Certainly the word of God for the people of God today. Give me the help I need to get out of the way and let this word and your spirit and your son and your plan stand so clearly and boldly forth in our minds that we can't but see you and with wonder and delight worship you. In my weakness, Lord, I wish to decrease in order that in your great glory and strength you might increase. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. The question that lingers in people's minds, rightly so, as they think about the struggling churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then John is given this vast vision of worship in heaven. Struggling churches in Asia Minor, seven of them representing struggling churches around the world, including your town and this town and you and me. Sin inside and sin attacking from the outside. And heaven is worshiping. The Lamb steps forward 
He's coronated with authority. He receives the scroll from God the Father. He's the Lion of Judah. And he has authority over all of God's plans to open the seals and enact them all. Praise the Lamb and worship the Lamb. But how come there's this gap between the worship of heaven, John sees, and the struggling churches? What makes up for that gap? It's a toxic question that lingers like a bad odor in the air. How can it be that there's such pain and struggling and suffering and evil on the earth and such happy, joyful worship in heaven? People leave Christianity because of this question. Christians fall away and grow cold because of this question. How can God be receiving all the worship of heaven and everybody seems to be bowing before him so gladly and, and that's what my church is like for about an hour and a half on Sunday morning. But then there is such evil in the world. Such evil that rises in my heart and we battle within our home sometimes or in relationships or at work or in the news or online or in the nations of the world or in the spiritual realms. I can't see, but I know they're real. Who's in the driver's seat of the world. Is it evil and the decisions evil human beings make out of evil or is God ruling the world? That's the question, the all-important question. And chapter 6 is given as a vision to John right after chapters 4 and 5 in order to answer the question. That's why Revelation is written as it is. That's why these verses that Andrew just read for us are written as they are. Christ has not abdicated his throne. Evil does not run the world. This chapter, chapter 6, and especially verses 1 through 11, is meant to say God is not only on the throne, and his son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, holds the script of the world, the scroll in his hand, but they are absolutely ruling in meticulous, detailed sovereignty over the whole world, including the struggles you seven churches are going through, including the struggles you're going through in the United States of America and around every square inch of the globe, in every molecule, atom, and quark, of eternity, And as R.C. Sproul says, there are no rogue molecules. The answer of chapter 6 is not that we should get ready for some thunderous approaching hoofbeats someday coming. Put your spiritual ear to the ground and see if you can hear them coming. No, no. The answer of Revelation 6, 1 through 11 is that they've always been here and they're present on the earth now and God reigns over their activity. If you listen carefully, right behind your head, you can hear the snorting and the neighing and the blowing and the nickering of the horses. The picture that we're given in chapter 6 is, begins with now. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. This is the unfolding and the explaining of what we've seen so many times already in the Old Testament. You could turn to Leviticus 26. You could turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. Or you could turn to Zechariah chapter 6 and you could see over and over 
this promise that war and famine and, and conquering and pestilence and death have been granted or permitted by God to do their ugly and evil work on the earth. These four horsemen that are signaled here in the first eight verses of chapter 6 are familiar to readers of the Bible because they come right out of Zechariah chapter 6 and out of the prophecy of Ezekiel. The point is not that the horses are arriving, they're already here. Rather, as we'll see, the point is God has absolute protection and purpose and limitation corralling those horses. They only do exactly what he permits them to do. The the news of this chapter isn't, look out, horses are coming. The good news of chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is, They've been here, and I reign over every activity of their dark hearts. We'll look at each horse in a moment, and we'll conclude our time with looking at the cry of the martyrs around the throne. Both are crying out for justice. That's the very source of the question I began with, this justice. Where is justice on the earth? It's a pertinent and relevant question because every human being has this innate sense of asking, where's justice? How come things go wrong when they should go right? How come I've been wronged by people I thought I could trust? Political movements cry out for justice. One in our country and in the West says, shouldn't we act justly according to documents and traditions? That's what will bring about most order and harmony in our culture and our society. The other movement says, shouldn't we act in justice among one another? That will bring about the most unity and harmony in our society. Both are pursuing justice. Justice is the cry over Ukraine or over Afghanistan or for the plight of oppressed and afflicted victims everywhere on the face of the earth at all times and all places. The cry for justice is here answered. In Revelation 6, God has the final answer, and he proclaims that one day his son will return, and justice will roll down like a river, and he will establish justice on the earth, even as it is in heaven. We have the privilege of looking at two grand truths, one out of verses 1 through 8, one out of verses 9 through 11. Here's how I would state them. In verses 1 through 8, this passage teaches us that God's patient justice is always on on His heart, on the hearts of His people, and enacted in the world. God's patient justice is always on His heart, on our hearts, and being enacted in the world. We should have eyes to see His patient justice at work. You'll see it in a moment. The second truth is, Even the pain and sorrow that God permits is for the witness of the gospel. Even the pain and the sorrow God permits is for the witness of the gospel. Those two truths, let's look at in turn. We'll see how, in fact, it's no great news that these four horses are called forth and sent out on the earth. What's news is that they are under God's complete and perfect control. Yesterday... My wife Kathy and daughter Ruthie and several of us had the opportunity to join in the wedding celebration of Aaron and Jubilee Walls. They got married yesterday. Congratulations to them. Are you guys here? There they are. Woohoo! It was such a fun wedding. They got married yesterday. And they had 
friends up and family members standing as wedding attendants, and they also had Zeke the dog, who did great. So Tom Sher, who led us in worship, was talking with me after, and he said, how many times have you had a dog in a wedding before? And I thought, oh, not too many times. And I started thinking about the animals that I have had participate in weddings that I've done. And as Tom and I were talking, I remembered a wedding experience I had several years ago back in Michigan. And it struck me yesterday afternoon and last night and again this morning. I think the Lord wants me to tell you about this wedding experience because it's an image of the kind of life you and I have on earth. Where the horses are present and yet we're celebrating the wedding of Christ and his bride, the church, the work of the gospel. Picture a horse farm, two buildings, one was going to be used for the uh, reception and dance later. The other building had a few smaller, younger horses in it with those big, huge four-foot doors wide open. There were two sets of chairs, an aisle down the middle. The couple, dear friends of ours, came in on a carriage high up on the hill at the other end of the aisle, and it was just such a beautiful, picturesque scene. I'm standing down with my back up against a table, sort of an altar, and there's, there's little uh, candles on the table. And right on, on the other side of that picture, one of those horse fences. You know, three uh, uh, posts and styles. And then on the other side of that, all the mud and the stuff of horses. The, the pasture. And it was big and, and huge. And I was told by the owner who was hosting this wedding, yeah, the, the larger horses there on the other side of the pasture, they won't come near. So the wedding begins and all the people are just beaming. Parents are sitting down front and we're all uh, in our wedding best and the music is playing over the sound system and the couple comes down out of the carriage and down the aisle and we begin to go through the wedding process and say all the things we need to say and it's all fun and very beautiful and delightful and then a horse peeks his head out of one of the buildings and everybody laughs and you think, well, of course, that's the whole reason you have a wedding at a horse farm is so that the horse joins in. And then I, I'm talking, I'm giving my short gospel message to the couple, and I realize nobody in the room is listening to me or looking at me anymore. They're looking over my shoulder in this direction, far away. You know how people can just be like staring way far away? And all of a sudden we hear the thunder and the rumbling and the ground moving of three massive horses, workhorses, galloping full steam right toward me. Now, it just struck me early this morning. Maybe the owner was playing a trick on the preacher. <laughs> Maybe he went like that. And all of a sudden they came. But I don't know why they came. In the middle of my talking about marriage and the gospel and something out of the Bible, these horses roared right up and everybody is flinching and going like this in their chair. And their, their eyes are big and their faces are white. The couple is standing there. Mud is flying. Manes are flowing. The preacher is freezing like a statue. And they stopped right at the fence. Snorting, blowing, nickering right there at the fence. Noses over the fence, right by the candles. Could hear them blowing right behind me. There's that giddiness that comes over a wedding when everybody realizes we're okay. We can go on with the wedding. We didn't get trampled. And the horses joined in. And I did the rest of the wedding. And I realized that's exactly what the Christian life is like. The horses are already here. 
We're listening to the snorting, but they're completely under control. In fact, it's the altar of Christ between me and them. And everybody's got a giddy joy on their face because we're watching the gospel succeed on the earth in the marriage of Christ, the husband, to the church, the bride. That's the Christian life. Chapters 2 and 3 ache like crazy. Your life might ache like crazy. This church has the wind blowing at our back, and it's very joyful time right now, but there might be days not too far into the future, God alone knows, when we might be going through hardship as a church. Your family might be enjoying blessing now, but there might be days of difficulty. The United States of America is like the the Disneyland of the universe. Everything's going Fine, because we have so much of everything and we have so much access to everything. But there might come a day when we're under the same pressures as the early church in Revelation 2 and 3. Or or the difficult churches in Somalia or Ethiopia or Nigeria are undergoing right now as Pastor Andrew prayed. God knows and he knows best. The horses are already present. Listen for their snorting and enjoy the wedding. I'm thrilled at the picture of God's justice we get here. We're meant to be comforted. We're meant to be stabilized. We're meant to be so rooted and grounded in God that you come out of this passage saying, I don't fear the horses. I don't fear evil. I don't fear demons. I don't fear sinners. I don't even fear the wayward sin of my own heart. I fear God and I worship him. You always worship what you fear most. You always worship what you fear most. We will say with the Apostle Paul, when we, when we briefly conclude a brief, quick scan of these four horses and then the prayer of the martyrs, that we're servants of God. We commend ourselves in every way, we'll say with him. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, and calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, And behold, we live as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We are to be a church fully aware of the presence of the horses and their limited assignment from heaven to wreak havoc on the earth. That martyrs are being made And I might be one. Yet we're to fix our eyes on the joy of the wedding. Christ the bridegroom has conquered and he comes to gather his bride. Life in these days is both worship and warfare. Remember my two truths. God is always working his patient justice in the world. It's on his mind and it's on our our minds and we're watching him enact it. And the second truth is, all the suffering that believers go through is for the sake of the gospel. Let's look at those. Verses 1 through 8. 
The lamb opens up the seal. The lamb is the one who starts all of this. This is the lamb enacting his authority. This is the lamb taking the scroll on which is written God's decrees, and he opens it up. Verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, so the four living creatures that have been there all along, they're worshiping around the Lamb of God and the Father. One of them raises his voice like thunder, and he says, Come, almost like he's talking to a dog. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. There's a white horse. Comes right out as soon as he's commanded to come. Its rider had a bow. That's exactly what Rome used to conquer and wage war. It had a crown, but the Greek word for crown here is simply a warlord's crown, not the kind of crown Jesus has in Revelation 19. And this rider with bow and crown had those given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, if we're reading carefully along with Ezekiel and Zechariah, we see that all four of these horses are ridden either by, by angels or demons. Either one, it doesn't matter. They both are completely obedient to God, to the Lamb, and to the voice that commands them. The Lamb opens this first seal, and it's very likely that this white horse signals exactly what conquerors in first century Rome would have treated themselves like and rode. They rode a white horse. They put on their crown. They put on their armor. They took their bow and they would go out conquering and to conquer. It's been happening throughout the history of the world. It happens throughout the history of the church age since Jesus died and rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and it will happen until Christ returns. There will be people who think they can run the world better than God can. There will be people who think they can run lands and resources and wealth and nations better than God can. They might not get on the white horse of an actual animal. They might get on the white horse of their white keyboard to their computer, and they will try to run the world. Verses 3 and 4, the red horse follows. When he opened the second seal, again, the lamb is enacting this. I heard the second living creature say, come. The horse doesn't come out until he's called. And another horse comes out, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Permitted to take peace from the earth. So that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. The second horse rider is given a great sword. It's a phrase used in the Old Testament to talk about God bringing judgment upon his people. The great sword is causing people to slay one another, and there's bloodshed. That's why the horse is red. Bloodshed abounds. Black horse is next. It's a horse that signals poverty, scarcity, and famine. Look at verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, a signal often that there is poverty and rationing. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, which is a day's wage. Enough food for one man to eat, and that's it for his day's wage. Or three quarts of barley, hardly any nutritional value at all for a day's wage. 1,200% inflation, in other words, compared to what wheat and barley sold for at the day that John was writing this. Terrible inflation. So there's a conqueror permitted to go by God to do his conquering. There's a red horse slaying and 
violence and swords spill blood. And the economy is completely disoriented. Inflation is skyrocketing. And yet there's a limit to what this black horse can do. Don't harm the oil and the wine. You see how the injustice just reeks. The luxury of oil and wine is preserved so the the very few who have all the control over all the wealth, they can have the oil and the wine. Don't let anybody in the cities have police, but we're going to hire personal protection. Here is injustice, inequity, and oppression common in wartime, common on the earth, common in the United States, common in churches for goodness sake. Poverty explodes. The people who were reading the apocalyptic or the book of Revelation in John's day would have known full well about the injustice that an emperor named Domitian brought to the land that they were living in, the, the Asia Minor region from where John was from. He said, we have to make sure that the wine continues to flow and the oil. That was a phrase that the emperor used. Keep the oil and wine flowing, but you can burn over and leave to to, uh, unproductive ground where the barley and the wheat grow. They knew exactly what was being referred to here in verse 6. Finally, there's a pale death horse with Hades, the place of the dead, in tow. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal... Christ doing that. Remember, he's in the lead here. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and at the command of the fourth living creature, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority, given authority over a fourth of the earth. It's a lot, but it's not the whole earth. To kill with sword and famine, with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Pandemics, plagues, Beasts killing human beings, pestilence, death, nature coming against human beings, nature causing sickness because human beings are sinning. Have you ever seen that? Does that come into your awareness at all? Nature reacting to human beings' sin with sickness? These four horses have been present since Adam and Eve sinned and fell. Ezekiel 14 says it this way, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you, you will see their ways and their deeds. You'll be consoled for the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. In the midst of God bringing fourfold judgment, there's the consoling of some who have been preserved. You could read also in Zechariah 6. I have it in my manuscript, and I'll just summarize it for you. Zechariah 6 pictures these same four horses, white, black, red, and dappled or pale. And they're to go out patrolling the earth, Zechariah 6 says. But even there, the Holy Spirit will give rest to some. You see why I thought about this wedding memory that I had seemed to be so appropriate? The horses just snorting and flying right up to us, but they have to stop at the fence, right? The fence that God put up. And the altar, the work of Christ, stands between us and them. And he tells us, you can rest. You can rest. 
I'm in control. I'm in control, seven churches in Revelation. I'm in control, Lending. I'm in control in your heart and in your family, in your marriage and in your workplace, in your online relationships, in your dreams and visions to go to a place where they don't want you to come to share the gospel there. I'm in control, the Lord says. That's the comfort we're supposed to gain. We're not supposed to look at these four horses and and fear them as so many poor interpretations of Revelation 6 do. They elevate the horses as if they're some kind of marauding, renegade, law-breaking, wild creatures ridden by beings with no faces that get to wreak havoc on the earth. That's not the picture. It's just the opposite. Do you notice how many times the word given is used? The white horse rider had a crown given to him. The red horse rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, and he was given a sword. The black horse rider was limited in scope not to touch oil or wine. The pale horse rider explicitly was given authority from God and from the Lamb to touch a fourth of the earth and no more. Do you see who's in control here? God is. He doesn't want his sovereignty assumed. He doesn't want it argued about. He wants us to look at these four horses in absolute wonder and worship and say, Lord, you're in control. The comfort that every believer ought to have is that no matter what the future holds, no matter what the past has shown us, no matter what is going on in our lives right at the moment, we should not fear evil, We should not fear sinners. We should not fear the devil. We shouldn't even fear death. We should fear God. The issue of justice, as I mentioned, is already on the question in verses 9 through 11. And this passage will teach us exactly what the purpose of those four horsemen are. Ultimately, the four horsemen permitted are evangelistic. God means to save sinners. He means for hardships and difficulties outlined by these four horses to drive people to repentance. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. When he opened the fifth seal, Christ still doing the opening, I saw under the altar, the place where the worship of God occurs, the place where the lamb and the blood was spilt, the place where prayers are heard, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Surely these are martyrs who had been victimized by the work of the four horsemen and all the evil they bring. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see the justice they're crying out for? They address God, O sovereign Lord. They call him holy and true, and they're not looking for personal revenge. There's no sinful motives permitted in heaven, as you know. They're crying out for God to affect and avenge justice on the earth. Then they they were given, it says in verse 11, each a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. What a picture. The witnesses, the martyrs, who had been bold to bear witness for the word of God and for Christ and for the gospel, were killed for it. Oh, you love Jesus? You think he's forgiven you of your sins? You go to church? You read your Bible? 
you sing songs of praise to him and you pray, you should have your head removed. The sentence we pronounce on you, death. And then the question becomes, for those who did the killing, for those who killed the martyrs, for those who are dwelling on the earth, the dwellers of the earth, verse 10 says, that's a reference to the sinners who are unbelieving and hateful toward the people of God. The question is, will they repent because those horses are still present and the evil still comes upon them and presses upon them? Will they seize the moment? Will they look upon the world as it is and say, all of these groanings, all of this difficulty, all of this suffering and pain is meant for me to turn to the Lord and to repent? Or will they harden themselves? I'm going to go on a march. I'm going to take my orders and I'm going to walk on the road and I'm going to go to where the Christians are and I'm going to destroy their churches and I'm going to kill them and behead them and take their children from them and I am going to end the scourge of Christianity on the earth. Which will they do? Can you imagine these martyrs gathering around the throne of God? Can you imagine them crying out to the Lord? Can you imagine the altar around which they gather? They're called souls, and there they are in prayer, face to face before the Lord. They're not praying, as it were, to how their spirit can envision him. They're praying by looking at him directly. I imagine Stephen in that number. Back in Acts chapter 7 and 8, Stephen preaches, and he's made the first Christian martyr. But by this time, by the end of the first century, when John is writing... We also know that the Apostle Paul had been killed for his faith, according to church history. So Paul, there, maybe next to Stephen, around the throne, crying, How long, O Lord, until you avenge the blood of those who've died for their witness? Paul was the one, before he was soundly converted, who stood in the approval holding the cloaks while stones were thrown at Stephen to kill Stephen after Stephen preached. Can you imagine Stephen and Paul looking at each other around the throne? Martyrs, both? Can you imagine Stephen reaching out his arm and putting it on Paul's shoulder and looking at each other and weeping and embracing and worshiping the Lord together with the word of Scripture, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Jesus said this would happen. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and elsewhere in the Gospels that these kinds of things would happen. When he goes to the Father, he said, these horses are going to be around for the entire time when I'm gone and until I come back. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, Jesus said to his disciples. They wanted to know about the end of history. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying because those horses are doing all their conquering and their war and their poverty and their, their uh, slaying and their pestilence stuff, 
that many people will say, God is not worth worshiping because he can't control this wild, chaotic mess. Jesus says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There are people who decide not to read their Bibles, not to pray, not to gather in churches like we are right now, not to worship the Lord, because God seems like he doesn't have control over the world. He doesn't even seem to have control over his church. What does he say to the justice-seeking martyrs in heaven? How does he comfort them? How does he encourage them? What does he tell them to do? Verse 11, they were given each a white robe. Just like the four horsemen each had something given. Verse 11 says, these martyrs were given a white robe. You've got the white righteousness of Christ. Your sins are forgiven, remember. You're here in heaven with me. You came in here not by your own effort, not by your own hard work or virtue. You came in here because Jesus opened the door for you. You're in heaven because you've got a white robe cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb who's opening all these seals and causing all this to happen, He brought you in here. He paid your way. He absorbed my wrath on your behalf. He paid your debt. So take your white robe, just like the 24 elders have a white robe, and Christ himself has a white robe in Revelation 1. So you martyrs, wear your white robe. You represent all the church who has the white righteousness of Christ to be clothed in. Take your white robe, and then look what he says to do. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. You see, when there's a martyr made somewhere on the earth, that's not because Christ has fallen asleep or God has abdicated his throne. There's a number written in the scroll before it was sealed, before the foundation of the world. There's a plan of God, and it's signaled right here. There's a number God has in mind. Am I to be one? Are you to be one? He knows, and he alone knows. What he says is rest. Rest. Yes, cry out for justice, but rest. Enjoy the wedding. Yes, you can hear the horses snorting, but just enjoy the wedding. Rest. When I allow a martyr to be martyred and killed, it is because I mean to witness to the gospel. I want people to hear the good news and repent of their sin and be saved, even the ones who are the most hateful of me and of my people. Let them repent of their sin and be saved. Every one of us in this room was once an enemy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God worked his saving, miraculous work in us by granting us faith to believe and seeing with the eyes of faith the beauty and wonder of Christ and receiving his forgiveness for us. That's the miracle of the new birth. It's a miracle in everyone's life. It could be a miracle in those who hate Christ and have made martyrs most violently. Even they, as long as life endures, can repent. This is all about the gospel surging forward on the earth. This is all about the gospel going forward, even if God ordains that it goes forward by means of martyrs. 
Jesus said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated for my name's sake by the nations. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But then he says in verse 13 of Matthew 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Keep your love for Christ white hot as you watch the wedding unfold on the screen or in the, in the vision of history that you have eyes upon and as you hear the presence of evil in the snorting of the horses that God has permitted and kept corralled, ask the Lord to give you a white hot passion. Light the candles as it were and keep feeding the fuel to your faith. The goal of the Christian life is for you and I to die well, and that is to die with our faith burning white hot. Forces all over this culture, forces that look like horses in this passage are trying to cool your faith. When lawlessness is on the increase, the love of most or many will grow cold. I don't want my love to grow cold. I don't want my wife and daughter's love to grow cold. I don't want the faith inside my son and his wife to grow cold. I don't want any of your faith to grow cold. I want this passage to so comfort you that you say, even when I see evil, I'm going to look right through it and see all, all the way through to the hand of God and his commands to come and his son opening the seals and him sitting on the throne in absolute restful glory. And I'm not going to let... Bible reading and prayer and gathering with God's people and singing and being involved in a ministry to flag or to, to diminish or to die out. I'm going to make that fire burn white hot for Christ in my life. I'm going to be zealous. I'm going to take the white robe that these martyrs are given and I'm going to wear it and I'm going to rest before the Lord and worship him just like he rests on his throne in heaven, worshiping his glory. We have the opportunity this very day, we have the opportunity with this very passage to say what kind of a people, what kind of a church, what kind of a home are we going to be? Are we going to be white hot for Christ? Are we going to be keeping our eyes on the, the bridegroom and on the bride? Or are we going to become trembling and fearful and anxious and scared because of the threats of evil that come on the right and the left? Let's be white hot Let's be among those whose love does not grow cold, but looks to Christ and, said, and says with giddy joy, the horses are behind the fence. And I'm going to watch this wedding take place, and it's going to be magnificent. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for Revelation 6 and its power to stir us. Thanks for helping us to see your power over these apocalyptic horses that have the ability to stir such emotional reaction in everyone who reads of them and considers them. We don't fear them, Lord. We fear you. We worship you. We delight in you. We want our, our lives to burn white hot for you. You're the centerpiece of our lives. We're among the bride and you're our bridegroom. You have won the victory on our behalf. You're the seal opener, and therefore you're the one in full control over all the scroll contains. Lord, I pray for a, 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 a person possibly in this room even now 
who doesn't know this joy, doesn't know you, doesn't know what we've even been talking about, is unfamiliar with all of these rich but complicated ideas and feels like they're on the outside of all this. I pray for that person to linger in your presence and stay here, even to come forward and have a friend put a hand on their shoulder and pray for eyes open to see past and through all the struggles and difficulties of their life and the world around them and see a wise and good God and a holy and having been slain lamb and a whole host of heaven worshiping, worshiping because this God rules all that occurs in heaven and on earth. Oh, be glorified, Lord, in the heart of that one person. Draw them to yourself. Call them to yourself. Give faith today, Lord, where the eyes of faith haven't been there before. The disciples came to you and said, Lord, increase our faith. And I'm coming to you to say, Lord, for me and for everyone in the sound of my voice, increase our faith to see you through all these things. To rest in you even a little while longer until you return. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word with singing. Thank you.